Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. I recently asked an economist for his take on the state of San Francisco. I wasn't really expecting this answer. I would say the vibes are not great, just walking around the city personally. This is Arpit Gupta, associate professor of finance at the NYU Stern School of Business. The homeless situation has gotten worse, it seems like, over the last couple of years compared to some of my visits beforehand. There's a little bit of desolation in the air, so it definitely seems a little bit apocalyptic to me. Gupta is co-author of a recent study titled Work From Home and the Office Real Estate Apocalypse. It's gotten a lot of attention because it outlines how cities with lots of people working from home might get caught in an urban doom loop. I'm Laura Wenis. This week, how the collapse of the downtown office real estate market could spell disaster and some possible ways to escape the loop. How screwed are we, really? From the San Francisco Chronicle, this is SF Next, Fixing Our City. Let's start with the vibes. Professor Arpit Gupta is certainly not alone in pointing out that they're not good. Is that sense of unease a big driver of potential urban decline? Gupta says it's hard to quantify. I think people look at things like murder rates because those are the ones that are sort of the most commonly legible across different areas and across time. And so those types of more, more serious crime do seem to have gone up, but are still well below levels that we had seen in previous decades. So it's really the trajectory and the change that I think people are worried about. And then I think broadly, there is this sort of category of crime, which sort of falls into the disorder category, right? These are the kind of like videos that go viral on TikTok about people stealing a whole bunch of merchandise at a downtown store in San Francisco. And to a certain extent, you can look at statistics, but I think it's really something that grows as a result of word of mouth or social media or the news covering it. And it's a perception issue that a lot of cities are grappling with. Gupta says he hasn't studied the role of perception in a doom loop scenario. What he has studied, and what can be quantified, is a decline in office real estate values. Gupta has said that downtowns are the linchpins holding cities together, and that's something we hear a lot. But it can feel a little abstract to someone who's just been working their job and getting by for the last three years, or someone whose neighborhood has actually blossomed during the pandemic. I wanted to know why should a teacher, a janitor, a nurse, or a line cook care that commercial real estate values are going down? So the most direct impacts, of course, of decreased values in downtown areas are going to be felt on the landlords, right? And as you're alluding to, they're not a particularly cuddly group of people. People don't really feel that sympathetic towards them. But the broader commuting flows that happen in downtown areas do ultimately sustain the broader economy. So by that, I mean all the office workers that are commuting to their offices. And by way of commuting, they're helping to sustain that metro network. When they're downtown, they're buying goods and services, right? They're getting a haircut. They're going for lunch. They're going for happy hour after work. And the overall pattern of retail and consumption that people are doing as a part of their overall spending behavior associated with their commuting really helps to sustain the broader web of economic activity that helps to make cities great. Can you explain the loop part of the doom loop concept? So 
stepping back a second, one of our inspirations was thinking about what happened to cities starting from the 1960s and 70s. Actually, let's step back even farther. Research shows that white people in particular started leaving certain neighborhoods in the first few decades of the 1900s, largely driven by their racist desires not to live near the many new black residents moving in. Racial covenants restricting black, Asian, and Native American homeownership enforced residential segregation and a wealth gap. Post-war policies also incentivized highway construction, the relocation of manufacturing jobs out of cities, and suburban homeownership. Soon, people, mostly white people, were moving to the suburbs in droves. And the doom blue part of this is the idea that once you have suffered that initial shock, that will lead to a certain degree of outmigration. That then makes it harder for the tax base of the city to ultimately provide the sorts of public services that people really need at an affordable tax rate. And without the ability to rely on that tax base, the city may then have to raise taxes, cut back on spending in ways that ultimately encourage more individuals and more firms to leave the area. So we're kind of introducing this concept to understand broadly the risks that cities are facing. We're not saying that this is necessarily something that's going to happen. We think there's a key role for policy to try to arrest the decline that has happened and try to make sure we get back on a virtuous cycle. These days, it's not necessarily the dream of a white picket fence that's drawing people out of cities. For those who are working from home, there's a desire for more space to do so. I asked Gupta if there's a tipping point after which we're in the doom loop, a certain portion of tax revenue drying up or a particular service being cut that might be the canary in the coal mine. I don't think there's any one number to point out there, but I think one statistic I would look to is what is happening with urban rents. So what you see in many cities across the country is that the values of commercial real estate is going down, but at the same time, apartment rents are going up. One pattern that you actually see here in San Francisco is this is one of the few cities where apartment rents have gone down compared to before the pandemic. And so that tells you that even though people do have higher demand for space, that's really being outweighed by the idea that people are leaving the city in sufficient numbers, that there's just less demand to be here overall. Why is that dangerous for the city's economic outlook? I think there are two aspects of that. The first is whether firms are moving towards hybrid work or fully remote work. If I'm allowing hybrid work as a firm, my employees are still coming in some number of days a week, right? And that does allow people to move away a little bit from the city center, but they're probably not going to move outside of the metropolitan area overall. And in the second scenario, you really have fully remote work and you give your employees the option of living anywhere in the country as long as they're doing their jobs. And another thing that we've seen in San Francisco is that employers are actually more likely to go to fully remote work. And that's kind of true in general across the West Coast, Portland, Los Angeles, San Jose. You have a lot of firms moving for completely remote work, which then allows people to leave the metropolitan city entirely. Which means they're taking their tax revenue with them, or why is that dangerous? Yeah, they're taking their tax revenue with them. They're taking their consumption dollars with them. So it's not just the formal taxes they're spending. It's the broader consumption that they're providing to the local economy. They're taking their children out of school. So you have a whole series of factors that are amplified by this extent of urban flight. Another problem with dropping prices, Gupta says, is that this city has relied on high prices and high taxation for revenue that enables high spending on social services. For example, $2.8 billion of the city's $14 billion budget goes to a broad category of human welfare and neighborhood development. 
But money isn't the only thing people take with them when they leave. They take their labor, too. An analysis from the City Economist suggests that it's not only and maybe even not primarily tech workers who are going. Less educated, lower-earning people were very likely to leave the region during the pandemic. I think there are two aspects of that. So the first most obvious one is that leisure employment is down in San Francisco compared to what it was before the pandemic, right? So there is less spending going on in restaurants and bars. That's one reason why some of these workers may be leaving, possibly to other parts of the country where demand for that type of job is exploding. The second factor is I think you do have to look at the difference of how things were before the pandemic. You saw a lot of people leaving San Francisco primarily for reasons associated with affordability and being able to get a house in particular. In fact, many urban centers across the country, again, even before the pandemic, really had negative net domestic migration, meaning that more people are moving out of the city compared to moving into the city. As Gupta pointed out, we've seen this before. But after that outmigration of the 60s and 70s, some cities turned around. They found new uses for hollowed out spaces. Different people moved in. Different jobs opened up. New York in the 60s and 70s was a great place for artists because the decline in value coming from the loss of all those manufacturing jobs actually opened up a lot of space for artists to inhabit those factories that were converted into loss in artist space. Some cities were ultimately able to recover and find a new footing. Those are cities like Pittsburgh or New York. Ultimately, they found that new economic center in downtown offices, which introduced white-collar work to replace the old blue-collar manufacturing jobs. San Francisco did this, too. So, you know, here in San Francisco, you used to have tons of manufacturing space here, right? The city that was ultimately converted towards other purposes. Most cities have that experience of they went through this really bad period in the 60s and 70s, had a lot of manufacturing space they didn't know what to do with, and then were ultimately able to convert it into something else. So the businesses of tomorrow may ultimately use some of the space that we're talking about here. More on the worst case scenario, I think you have the possibility that, you know, if you can't really find anything to do with the space, then you kind of have to destroy it, tear it down, do something else with it. I hear this concern a lot for cities like Chicago as well, where you also have these big shocks, you also have drops in demand, but they were sort of starting from a much lower price point, both for residential and for commercial. And so if you have a decrease in demand for the space and you already were finding it difficult to pencil out, then you may really be more likely to go to a point where it's not economically viable. Gupta says when people just flat out don't even want to live in your city anymore, then you have a problem. I would say before the pandemic, a lot of cities just sort of took a attitude towards their residents that they had no other choice, right? You have to live here, be it in San Francisco or New York or some other high cost city. And that means you can kind of get away with offering those residents a poor quality of living, right? You can have very high house prices. You can have poor quality of governance. And people just don't have a choice. They have to stay there and live in the city. What's changed now is that people do have a choice. And so I think there's going to be more sorting. There's going to be more interest in people moving to locations they want to live in. And from a fundamental perspective, I think San Francisco does have a lot of great attractions, right? It has great nature has tons of outdoor activities for people. So there are a lot of good fundamentals here, but I think the quality of governance is really the big minus. And it's a, ultimately a task for, I think, the public sector to think about how to reform itself so as to remain an attractive destination, even when people do have a choice. Looking at the numbers, I wanted to get Gupta's sense for how much trouble San Francisco is really in. With our annual budget of around $14 billion with a B dollars, the supervisors are working on closing a hole of roughly $720 million over the next two years. 
How disastrous is that? I think in the short run, cities have a lot of tools and fiscal vehicles at their disposal to try to deal with temporary shortfalls, right? There were a lot of funds that were given out over the course of the pandemic in particular to help municipalities kind of deal with shortfalls. And again, in the short run, I can imagine one-off levies or short-term spending cuts that can be used to try to address some of these shortfalls, right? One obvious way of getting more funds, for example, it's appealing to me as an urban person is just charging more for cars that are parked on the street, right? It's a very simple way of charging appropriately for space and ways that would help the city recoup a little bit more money. I think a lot of people just got really mad at you. Well, this is the problem. So the, <laughs> the problem is in the long run, if you're trying to use different tools at your disposal to try to come up with a gap, is that really going to be something that becomes a sustainable and viable source of revenue for years to come, right? And something we haven't touched on yet, but you know, certainly in the news right now, we also have the Silicon Valley Bank yes. just kind of went under. And that's another source of uncertainty about the economic conditions of the area. I don't know how decisive it will be in the long run, but it's certainly one other point of concern about how viable the business climate will be going forward. One plan that's been floated for downtown is tax breaks. And I wanted to see if you might weigh in on this just to give you kind of an overview. One of the proposals is to give businesses an annual discount of up to a million dollars off their gross receipts taxes that for, for I think that one's for moving here for locating here. Do you have any perspective on tax breaks and how they might help or hurt in this scenario? So I think one challenge with these tax breaks, which were again, very popular before the pandemic as well is now it's not just enough to move a headquarters, you actually have to get the people to come as well, right? So you can convince a company to come here. But if they ultimately don't have many workers, that are in the city, then it's not clear what deal you're really getting there. And I think many areas are seeing this issue with tax breaks they've already given out. They've noticed that they're giving out tax breaks and none of the workers are actually showing up there. So that's really one challenge. One thing that some areas have tried to do is target the tax breaks towards the person, not the company, right? So Tulsa, Oklahoma, for example, has a remote worker incentive program to try to encourage people to come there rather than to try to encourage firms. But Tulsa, Oklahoma is not one of the most expensive areas in the country. After a break, Gupta explains how the West Coast's high cost of living might be one reason why the effects of working from home are more persistent here. Before we go, a reminder that we want to hear from you. We'd like you to have a voice on this podcast, too. Do you have a solution that you want the city to pursue? Or do you know someone who's making a difference on an important issue? Send a voice memo or just write an email to sfnext at sfchronicle.com. I've been talking with Arpit Gupta, Associate Professor of Finance at the NYU Stern School of Business. He's looked at the decline of commercial real estate values, in New York City in particular, but he's also noted that San Francisco has seen even bigger declines than New York. San Francisco estimates the value losses somewhere between 27 and 43 percent. I wanted to know why it's worse here. So I think the biggest factor is remote work and the extent of remote work or the type of remote work, right? So first, you have composition of tenants here, particularly tech, that are more inclined to do remote work and are more inclined to do fully remote work or hybrid work for more days of the week. That means that they're more likely to give up on space. But even controlling for industry, you do see that there's something about San Francisco and it's really the West Coast in general that has more remote work and more fully remote work or hybrid work in which people are at home more days of the week. 
I think some factors behind why is it that this part of the country has adopted remote work even more aggressively include the prices that we've touched on earlier. So when your home is really expensive, when you're paying a lot to rent near your place of work, you're really excited about finding some option that's a little bit cheaper for you. So there's just a level of prices, of house prices. But then there's also how house prices change as you move further away from the center of the city, what we think of as a rent gradient. It's hard to go any number of hours away from San Francisco and find anything remotely affordable. So that just makes workers really inclined to do remote work and do remote work in Austin rather than remote work here in San Francisco. Another factor is potentially the urban amenities themselves, right? So in, in New York, I think we have pretty good urban amenities. People, I think, really like to do stuff. Okay, you can brag. It's fine. <laughs> and just looking at the data and just kind of comparing and contrasting, I think there's a perception, fair or not, that San Francisco is is lacking in that department. I <gasps> Are we I actually, boring? I actually personally do like the city. I, I love the coffee shops. I love the restaurants. I love a lot of outdoor activities here. But I hear that perception from people who are worried about things like crime, who are worried about things like urban disorder, and just the quality of life experience of living in the city. There's this sense that office rents and commercial building prices aren't coming down despite what the evidence suggests is happening to their value. I think you touched on this also in your study. What's up with that? So I would say that the building owners are a little in denial of what's what's sort of happening on, on the ground. And so there's a lot of stickiness with respect to these stated rent terms. Now, one way to get more flexibility is to offer people some concessions, right? So these are additional concessionary items that lower the actual price paid in order to kind of incentivize people to come in. There are, I think, a variety of sort of frictions in the background that mean this sort of happens. So for example, some building owners may have covenants on their debt. That means they have to go back to the bank in order to change their formal rental price, right? Some building owners may be doing what we think of as gambling for resurrection, which is just maintaining the hope that maybe someday they really land that great tech tenant. And so they're just kind of holding out hope for that. Other building owners, I think, are just really worried about the peer effects. So I have one tenant and I have one rent for them. And if they find out that I've given some other tenant this great sweetheart deal, well, then I'm going to have to lower that rent for all the other tenants. So there are a variety of frictions here that mean that these rental prices are not very flexible in a downward direction. One thing we haven't touched on as much, but was a key thing of our research is that it's really the newer higher amenity space that seems to be in demand. And it's the lower quality old office space that has seen demand just really fall off. So I guess just more agnostic on that question of what is going to happen to the space and who is going to want to move into it. Let's say businesses do move back into downtown offices. Building owners' bets on recovery pay off. People come back to work here. How are they going to get to the office every day or every other day? It may not be on BART. That system is facing a fiscal cliff. In its worst case scenario, we could be left with a regional transit system running trains every hour or less and on fewer lines. And that's another area where we have some doom loop dynamics, right? Because what tends to happen is when fewer people take the transit system, the sense of public disorder also grows, right? And it becomes more unsafe, or at least a perception of lack of safety grows. So you worry also about a transit debt spiral, whereby lower utilization of public transport leads to less service, leads to fewer people taking it. One thing that many cities are thinking about in the wake of that is to kind of formally give up on the idea that transit should sort of pay for itself and move that towards more of a public utility model 
whereby we don't ask the fire department to pay for itself. We don't ask the police to pay for themselves. Why should we ask the public transit to pay for itself? And it becomes just another part of the budget that receives large ongoing subsidies. There are advantages and disadvantages to that approach, but I think highlights the extent to which shortfalls in commuting are really impacting the broader functioning of the urban environment. Do you see a way to avoid a doom loop that doesn't rely on people returning to the office five days a week or at least more than they currently are now? I think there is this potential of trying to get cities to follow a consumption city model, right? So that's the idea that you're going to have cities that are not locations where people come to produce things, but where they go to consume things, right? And this is something that was kind of already sort of in the discourse even before the pandemic. It's the idea that you had an increasing number of people move to cities in order to access those urban amenities, in order to access the consumption that they're doing in cities, not because they're going there for work. Perfect example of this is probably Paris, right? So the center of Paris is full of people, very high prices. And a lot of these people are reverse commuting, right? They're taking some transit and they're going to some suburban office park in order to work and then coming back to the center of the city, right? It's clearly a city that's all about consumption. He sees at least one example of what that might look like in San Francisco. One thing I've kind of seen in San Francisco over the years is there's been a lot more pedestrianization, right? So you close up streets like Valencia and you have people just kind of walk up and down it. I think it's things like that, things that make the city more attractive to people that just want to live, just want to walk around and be able to go to a cafe, go to a restaurant, go to a bar, have all those types of consumption become relatively more attractive things to do while remaining in the city. Since it started becoming clear that San Francisco's downtown was unlikely to return to its former bustling self, people have been talking about using those office towers for something else. The obvious choice is housing, since that's something San Francisco has struggled to produce. Property owners and developers have repeatedly warned that this is a really expensive and difficult endeavor. Gupta knows that, but isn't ready to dismiss the idea. I think this is a really important question. What we see kind of historically in the last decade or so, something like 1% to 3% of the office stock has been successfully converted. So for the entire office stock as a whole, it's it's not a big part of what has happened. Now, there are certain neighborhoods and areas where it's been a bigger deal. So, for example, the Tribune Tower in Chicago, this giant newspaper headquarters was converted to condos. In New York City, in the financial district, there was a big effort to try to convert a lot of those skyscrapers into housing, which was ultimately quite successful. A number of units were converted in that way. So there are some historic examples of it. With modern office buildings, post-war office buildings, you typically have very large, wide office blocks. And so you're, you've got a lot of debt space in the center that you have to figure out what to do with. So that's an example of the logistical challenges and potentially also building regulation and zoning challenges that kind of relate to the area. Zoning in general, I think, is actually less of a concern because typically these buildings are not surrounded by NIMBYs, right? So they're, you know, in the center of an office commercial district. So they literally don't have neighbors to complain about their conversion to some other source. So that's actually one benefit. Another big benefit is exactly because all the transit lines point to them. They're right in the center of the transit hub. and You can go anywhere else in the city. So those are some big advantages, but the physical complexities are just really enormous in many cases. So these are really expensive, complicated conversions. In many cases, it is easier just to demolish the building and start over. Then you run into the issues that interest rates are higher, financing difficulties are higher. It's very challenging to build anything these days. Labor costs have gone up, material costs, so on and so forth. So that's just like a mix of some of the benefits and costs of doing this. 
what we're famous for is having an incredibly long and drawn out permitting process. And I wonder if, you know, that strikes you as being a potential hiccup in the office to residential conversion idea dream absolutely I've, I've been to a number of the planning commission meetings here in san francisco so i i know why <laughs> <laughs> you know I, I enjoy enjoy seeing uh, local democracy in action so i definitely well aware of the of the challenges that that come in there i think in general many cities are actually relatively optimistic about that part i th i think because they feel that this is an area where you're really trying to convert one use into residential. So for example, by way of contrast, a number of cities have been successful moving industrial zoned areas to residential, right? Or building new greenfield sites like Hudson Yards in New York City, for example. But certainly to your point, I think if these were as of right conversions rather than something that went to the formal planning process, it would be a lot easier to do them. We've now been talking about San Francisco's specific situation and comparing it to other cities for about an hour. Is San Francisco more screwed than other cities? I think so, because you just sort of see that remote work seems to have taken off here much more so than other cities. Back to our earlier point, you see apartment rents seem to have fallen here more than other cities. And again, that is good from a affordability standpoint, but it signals a loss of demand for the attractions here. And for those reasons, I think it's, it's sort of ground zero for remote work's impacts. Yeah. Ouch. Well, thank you very much for your time. It was a pleasure. That was Arpit Gupta, professor of finance at NYU's Stern School of Business. Fixing Our City is part of the San Francisco Chronicle's SF Next project, where we explore how the city will chart its future and address its biggest challenges. Send an email to sfnext at sfchronicle.com to get in touch, or you can DM us on Twitter. We're at sfnext. I'm Laura Wenis. Coming up on SF Next, Fixing Our City, now that we've made the case that declining office real estate values have the potential to seriously impact all of San Francisco, we'll talk about some ideas to avoid the doom loop. We'll bring you highlights from a live discussion on escaping the death spiral next week. Cynthia Lopez produces and reports for Fixing Our City. Gary Baca is our sound engineer. King Kaufman is the executive producer. Jonathan Krim is the SF Next project editor. Fixing Our City is part of the San Francisco Chronicle's SF Next project, exploring how the city will shape its future and tackle its biggest problems. Read stories by our reporters, check out interactive data breakdowns, and find our podcast archive at sfchronicle.com sfnext. If you have a solution you'd like us to cover or you know about a city that's doing something right, get in touch. Shoot an email to sfnext at sfchronicle.com or find us on Twitter, at SFNext.